From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley, and I'm filling in for Nell Larson this week. Our first guest this morning will be Jason Mark. He's the editor of Sierra Magazine, where he posted an article last week summarizing the most important environmental stories of the year, from the Inflation Reduction Act to the U.S. Supreme Court to why our global consumption of coal went up along with our installation of renewables. It's a roundup of the good, the bad, and the inspiring from the year that was, and it's in the first part of the show. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to be speaking with Joel Zaro. He's going to be coming into the studio to discuss the Park City Climate Fund, its purpose and impact on our community and beyond since its inception. The fund has awarded more than half a million dollars to organizations mitigating climate change in Summit County. And of course, Joel Zaro is the executive director for the Park City Community Foundation. All right, and uh, all that, and a little reminder of uh, the seasonal lighting ordinance mm. we have in town. Lots of Christmas lights. Yeah. Yay for that on commercial buildings and, and homes and Very such. festive. But there is an ordinance <laughs> in town. Yes. Uh, but there is some requirements yeah, associated shut it down. with it. Okay, Clara, you're, <laughs> you're, you're jumping to my... You sound like me. All right. I'm ready. Gonna, I'm ready to get to our we're first We're going to explain uh, and talk a little more about that at the end of the show. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Jason Mark, he's the editor of Sierra Magazine, uh, author of, uh, of a book we'll get to later on, but he's here to talk about an article he posted on the Sierra Magazine website uh, oh, on December 23rd. It's titled The Most Important Environmental Stories of 2022, The Good, the Bad, and the Inspiring of the Year That Was. Jason, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you, Chris and Claire. Appreciate it. Well, this, this is, uh, we'll try to do this as, as simply as possible. You got 10 items uh, that you list as your top stories of the environmental stories of the year. Let's start with number one, the oddly named Inflation Reduction Act. Now, you uh, say that it's a, a slimmed down version of Build Back Better, not quite as good as the original Green New Deal. Give us the, the details on what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, so this is the biggest, in fact, the first act by the U.S. Congress to tackle global climate change. It's $370 billion and federal investments in wind and solar, batteries, energy storage. Um, and as listeners might remember, it was a hell of a roller coaster to get there. Um, Senator Joe Manchin, about this time last year, last December, pulling the plug on Build Back Better, uh, you know, being in machinations with uh, the White House and Senate Leader, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And then finally in July, we got this bill and it was signed by the president in August. Um, and it's a big deal. And it's unfortunate because not a lot of folks know about it. I right. think that kind of, you know, its name is all confusing. It got lost under the headlines. But this, this, if all goes according to plan, um, will slash U.S. greenhouse gas pollution 40% between now and 2030. Wow. And in, in uh, a sentence or two, what goes into that? Uh, how is that uh, reduction achieved? It's mostly through... Uh, a suite of, of tax credits and loans and grant programs by the federal government that are going to go to states 
and businesses and individuals, households, um, again, for winds, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging stations. And that will get us uh, a huge step closer to electrifying the American economy. Perfect. Now, you mentioned Senator Joe Manchin in passing. Uh, that kind of segues to, to uh, item number two, midterm elections, because I'll jump to this. I don't think Senator Joe Manchin is going to be as important or have as much leverage as he once did uh, following these midterm elections. Do I got that right? That's exactly right. Hopefully. Yeah, with the, <laughs> yeah, with the Democrats picking up an extra seat in the Senate. Um, I mean, there was a number of reasons why the Republicans way underperformed historical trends and expectations going into this election. Um, but one of them is just the massive turnout by youth voters and the overwhelming skew of youth voters to Democrats who in general are far better on climate and the environment than Republicans. And so in key places, especially like the Senate races in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman won in Arizona, where Mark Kelly was reelected in Georgia, where Senator Raphael Warnock was reelected. Just the like, sometimes I think in Pennsylvania, it was like a 30 point spread of, of young voters, Gen Z voters going for Democrats over Republicans. And those voters, as survey after survey has shown, younger voters are hugely motivated by climate. It's either their number one or number two issue. And so I think what you see is, even if we didn't quite see it in, say, 2020 or 2022, you eventually, I think we're starting to see the emergence of a, of a true kind of climate voting block that's going to play a huge role in U.S. elections going forward. All right. Well, that's encouraging. And like you say, in part of the subtitle, inspiring. Uh, and we'll, we'll see how that pans I out. I think so. Yeah. So number three, though, uh, is climate related. You, you title it Summer Scorcher. I just want to say that out here in the Salt Lake area, we had, I believe, was the warmest June, July, August summer, uh, meteorological summer on record. Yeah. Uh, not surprising because you uh, cite... Uh, and you record all weren't alone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as folks, you know, the, the thing I got a ton of news, of course, was the, was the uh, unprecedented heat wave that struck Europe, that struck the UK. I mean, weather records across Great Britain fell. Major rivers in Europe, like the like the Po and the Rhine, um, were at record low levels. But folks got to remember, even before that happened, there were hundreds of millions of people in India and in Pakistan sweltering to the spring. China had its worst heat wave up on record. You know, the, the, the meteorologists will still be crunching the numbers into the early part of 2023, but I think we'll see that the summer was this, was probably the hottest summer on record. Even if the year as a whole is not the, the hottest year ever, this summer is going to be a, a record breaker. Um, and again, unfortunately, it's just a, a taste of things to come. Right. And as we move on to four, and something that we see here very often in Park City, yes, um, you call it peak ice is likely here. Explain what that acronym stands for. Yeah, thanks, Claire. So in this case, ice is not uh, you know frozen water. Ice is the acronym for the internal combustion engine, and it's very likely that 2022 will be the year of all-time sales of the internal combustion engine. After which point they will begin to decline. And we will see electric vehicles taking a larger and a larger market share. That is, no, there will be no year other than 2022 in which more internal combustion engines will be sold. We are gonna be down into the park slope metaphor. We're, going, we're, going, we're going down the slope, right? We're going downhill now right. um, when it comes to gasoline and diesel powered engines. 
This year, it's looking like globally about 10 million electric vehicles sold, most of those in China, but you got other countries in Europe. And even here in the U.S., you know, about 6% of vehicles sold this year will be electric. might not sound like much, but that's actually three times what it was just two years ago. So right. the market is, is you know, doubling uh, every couple of years. Right. I mean, yeah, I remember, well, when it was just like 1% and, and people were kind of celebrating the fact that we broke one and then two. And now yeah. you're saying it's up to yeah. 6% and that number is only going to increase. And I, we see evidence of that here in Park City. Uh, very much so. And also when you're traveling, though, when you pull off, I see stations. There's a lot more Fast charging there. stations. Yeah. And Utah is building more mm -hmm. of them as many other states are right. as well. So really encouraging news there. Yeah, it's very encouraging. All right. Um, and moving on to number five, continuing the encouraging news, you have uh, markets and investors opt for clean energy. So more, yeah. more Wall Street-related investors, businesses looking out for clean energy opportunities. Yeah, this one's a little wonky, but you know, I titled this yearly franchise the most important environmental stories, not necessarily the biggest. So some of these are sleeper stories that you know only kind of the insiders are paying attention to, but might have a huge ripple effect outward. Uh, and this next one's a big one, which is that uh, it's very likely this year, at least according to a major uh, investment firm, Brystad Energy, that this year total global investments in renewables will top total global investments in oil and gas. Um, and so that just goes to show it's a really important indicator that the smart money sees where the future is. The smart money sees where the energy markets are going. And, you know, you have a lot of noise, uh, mostly from uh, Republican attorneys general, uh, who are complaining about you know state pension funds who are doing quote unquote woke capitalism? Mm. It's not woke capitalism. It's just investors being smart with their money and seeing where again the future is headed. And the future is not in coal, oil, and gas. The future is wind, solar, energy storage, batteries, etc. And and that's where they're putting their money. We're speaking with Jason Mark. He's the editor of Sierra Magazine. Author, also author of the book, Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. Um, and we're talking about uh, his article in Sierra Magazine, uh, kind of summarizing the top 10 environmental stories for the year 2022. We've gone through the first five. Now we get to uh, a few uh, stories that were a little more uh, unsettling. Uh, number six, Russian invasion of Ukraine accelerates move to clean energy so it's on the one hand it's 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 very concerning and disappointing the invasion mm -hmm. but you say there there is actually a little silver lining associated with that yeah i mean obviously the the russian invasion of ukraine was a was a shockwave to global energy markets i'm sure every listener experienced some of that at the gas pump um but but i think the the big story here is that how Europeans especially have responded by putting in place policies to accelerate the transition to clean energy. So yes, you see, and we'll talk about this in the next item, you saw an uptick in coal use in the EU this spring, but then you saw in June, the European Parliament passing a suite of policies to basically double the amount of energy they get from renewables by 2030. And so in some ways, this has kind of backfired on Vladimir Putin. I think he thought he could use his Russia's vast oil and gas reserves as, as a sort of a weapon, a geopolitical weapon. And instead, the, especially the EU is deciding, no, what we're going to do is make clean energy a shield. 
um, and not be at the whims of Petro dictators. And so it's it, in the end, even though obviously the suffering and the, and the human toll in Ukraine has, has been obviously horrendous, um, it's been interesting to see it redouble the commitment of Europeans to transition to a clean energy economy. Yeah, and let me uh, rescind my comment that there is no silver lining to one country invading another, Russia invading Ukraine. There is unexpected consequences associated with that, and, and this is maybe perhaps in the area of renewable energy, although number seven, you do. Let's spend a few minutes, because this is, this is not intuitive. The global use of coal actually increased last year. Why is that? Yeah, and this one's a bummer, especially because we'd seen basically since 2013, so almost a decade's worth of progress with coal use um, going downward. And then uh, this year we saw an uptick. Part of this is the Russian invasion. Coal use in Europe did increase as the Europeans cut off gas from Russia. But a lot of it is the story we've heard for a while, which is the, the you know the new rising industrial powers of Asia, you know China, India, and Indonesia, their use increasing. And so, you know, I think again in the long run, coal is as a major market investor said a couple of years ago, coal is a dead man walking. It doesn't have a long future in front of it. And at the same time, uh, as another market analyst said, coal demand is stubborn. Right. And it just goes to show how hard it's going to be to decarbonize the, the global economy. This is not easy. Um, I think we all know that. Um, but I think this unfortunate story of this increase in coal use shows just how hard it's going to be. Well, it isn't interesting, though, when you say we when we say it increased, it's only one point two percent. So yeah, between. It yeah, it's not it's almost um, you could almost say there's some bit of a background noise there because the economies of China and India, Indonesia, where, where a lot of this coal uh, uh, consumption is continuing to occur and the building of more coal-fired power plants continues to occur, those economies are, are ticking up more than 1.2%. So, so although That's right. you're seeing growth in population and, and consumption, Coal isn't actually mirroring the coal use that isn't mirroring the economic growth there. So that's encouraging. Yeah, oh, for sure. I think that's right. Um, in general, coal, it's basically flatlining. I mean, yeah. it's, it's plateaued this year. And again, in the long run, especially with the continued closure of plants in the U.S., um, closures of plants, you know, the World Bank is no longer doing loans for coal. So you're not going to see an increase in coal in developing economies like South Africa or Vietnam. Coal is, is not long for this world, but it's still going to take a while. Yeah, and but here in the U.S., I remember when we started this show 16 years ago, about no six or so, coal was basically half of our energy consumption was a function of burning coal. And now, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe you have a, a more, Jason, better number. I, I think it's somewhere under 30%. Yeah, in the 20s. it's around 25 30% been supplanted yeah. by gas. Um, is the number one source. And you've got a couple of states now, mostly in the Midwest, whose number one source of power is wind. Um, it's only a couple of them. I think it's like Kansas, Oklahoma, maybe one of the Dakotas. Um, so yes, I mean, the fact that we've gone from 50% of all the energy coming out of your light socket on average in the US being from coal to now less than 30 and really headed down to 25 percent it's amazing and yeah. it's happened in really you know just 15 years and and again that number is only trending down as well 
mm-hmm. uh, yeah. here in the U.S. Okay, let's turn to number nine, though. Well, let's turn to oil. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I skip eight? If you, you want to clarify, if you want to jump down to number nine, we can. I I, I think let's let's, let's, let's touch to, on eight yeah. because it, it got a little bit buried too, and you you note that All here. Right, so let's not bury it now, <laughs> Chris. All right. Yeah. We'll get to number number nine. eight is, you know, obviously this this is about a Supreme Court case called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. Um, it was easy to miss in the flood of major Supreme Court decisions this year, most obviously the Dobbs decision about reproductive freedom. Um, and in that same docket, there was a major case called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency. The details are almost kind of eye glazing. They're all about um, a certain section of the Clean Air Act and whether uh, power plants can, or whether the federal government can control or regulate emissions outside a power plant. But really the bigger question here is the court was trying to get at, and I should say that the conservative supermajority of the court was trying to get at this question of how and when and whether administrative agencies like the EPA, like the Food and Drug Administration, like the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, any really administrative agency, where do its powers um, run up against something called the major questions doctrine? Like, you know, how far can the federal government go in making regulations? Mm. and basically, in what most environmental attorneys consider a major kind of shot across the bow of the idea that, yes, modern government, the executive branch should be able to write rules, um, the court gave a very skeptical eye to that um, and ruled in favor of West Virginia and company. Um, now, the federal government still does have the power to regulate CO2. That's good news. Um, the EPA retained many of its authorities, but most court watchers saw this as the conservative supermajority really starting to lay the groundwork for a much broader assault on the executive branch's power to safeguard public health and safety. And so it's one to watch for sure. Yeah. And in this West Virginia versus EPA case, let's see, Justice uh, Kagan in her dissent wrote, the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court, Supreme Court, appoints itself, instead of Congress or the expert agency, in this case the EPA, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. And like you say, there's potential for more decisions like this from the Supreme Court uh, coming out of the Supreme Court. Yeah, so Chris, I lost you there for a second. You still there? Oh yeah, I was just, uh, I was just. You read the Kagan dissent. I heard yeah. some of that. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. I mean, you can tell she is not comfortable with this idea of the court sort of deciding it's going to be the one who decides what the executive branch can and cannot do. Okay, so that was, that was number uh, eight, the Supreme Court, and you talked about number nine, big oil in the hot seat. Um, well, let, let's touch touch base on that one again. What is that? Yeah, about? so in, it, in the end of 2021, uh, the House Oversight Committee uh, brought all the major oil executives to testify before Congress about what they knew and when they knew it yeah. about climate change. Basically asking the question, did, did the major oil companies deliberately deceive the American public? These hearings stretch into 2022, and actually just earlier this month, 
the committee put out its report in which it makes a really strong case that yes, uh, the major oil companies spent decades deceiving the public about the science of climate change and even now continue to basically greenwash their records. So the question, the big kind of story to follow here, especially since Democrats will no longer hold the House, is what happens with all this material that Congress has uncovered. And I think what it's going to do is it's going to help to provide material, it's going to help to provide grist for the now more than 20 state, local, and county lawsuits against big oil companies. Hmm. Um, so another one to keep an eye on, you know, everybody now from you know, counties in Colorado to the state of Minnesota, the state of New Jersey, District of Columbia, uh, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, state of Rhode Island, et cetera, have filed lawsuits claiming that big oil deliberately misled the public um, and should pay the cost of climate damages. And it's basically a repeat of, you know, the, the, the 1990s campaign against big tobacco. And so we're going to see eventually will the truth out and eventually will these uh, companies have to face their day in court. Yeah, it's interesting with respect to uh, our consumption of oil in this country. We've always been around 20 million barrels a day, plus or minus a million here or there. That number hasn't changed much, as I can, I believe, uh, over the past five, six, seven years. But it hasn't increased. But it's, it's, we just seem to be hanging out around that rate of consumption. Do you see, or look in your tea leaves, uh, the, the, our, con our U.S. consumption of oil going down in the, in the coming years? It really depends on that uh, item we talked about earlier yeah. about when we start to see a real acceleration of electric vehicles in this country. Transportation is the number one source of greenhouse gas pollutions in America. It's no longer, because of what we talked about earlier, it's no longer power plants. It's our cars, trucks, right. and all the semis on the roads. Um, so what we need to do is electrify transportation to get off of oil. And so it really depends on how fast and how well the major automakers are able to get EVs to market and how the public responds. Um, so the sooner we, we are able to electrify transportation, the sooner we're going to make uh, you know, more gains in, in, in slashing our carbon pollution. Just because, again, the biggest source of, of greenhouse gas pollution is our cars and trucks. Yeah, okay. Number 10. And so, yeah, so we get to number 10. And, and as you look through one through nine, um, and as you point out, most of these have a common thread and they're each in some way centered on climate and energy. Um, but one story in particular, uh, number 10 is a near and dear topic to this program. Um, and it's about preservation of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And we have long discussed on this program and what you write about in the article is the extinction emergency. Can you kind of break that down for us and what that's looking like? Sure. Uh, I'm glad this, this program has given so much attention to it because yeah, among I think the media and even environmental organizations and philanthropists, unfortunately, uh, climate change, as it should, gets kind of all the attention, but that's leaving to the side an equally big crisis of the disappearance, the extinction of plants and animals and flora and fauna around the world. That's the bad news. The good news is that for the first time ever, we now have a global treaty on biodiversity, or at least I should say a global treaty on biodiversity that's got a clear action plan. Mm -hmm. um, that came out of talks in Montreal just before Christmas, um, in which basically all the world's countries, except for the US, because we're not a party to the treaty, yeah. um, 
agreed to a a clear detailed plan for protecting 30 percent of the planet's uh lands and waters by 2030 and in general slowing the the rate of extinction um so that's good news and you know like a lot of plans like these and treaties we'll have to see how it all comes together do countries fulfill their pledges where's the money going to come from to accomplish these goals but at least we now have all the globe's nations um recognizing the threat of biodiversity loss and committing themselves at least on paper with this treaty to reversing it yeah and as you point out here i mean the the percentage is staggering 69 percent since 1970 has declined yeah that i mean um, and that's a number according to the world wildlife funds living planet report but i just that number to me is so staggering um and and I know that you've penned a new book. It's called Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. Um, Can you kind of tell us a little bit about this? Because I think that folds into that kind of nicely, this book that you've written. Yeah, well, thanks, Claire, for asking me about that. I just to Claire, I wish it were new. It actually came out uh, in a number of more like 2015. Oh, Um, I apologize. But yeah, it's all good. It's all about, um, it's all about how we can still hold on to wildness as a touchstone for our relationship to the rest of life on Earth, especially on a planet in which, you know, there's really nothing left that's pristine. Um, you know, for the book, I traveled to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where on the shores of the Arctic Ocean, mm-hmm. I, you know, stumbled upon a blue plastic cooler that had been washed up on the beach. So, like, even at the ends of the Earth, you got to do a plastic trash pickup. Yeah. Um, so, if there's no place that's pristine, um, you know, how do we how do we still hold on to a sense of wonder and awe and mystery in wild nature? And I think it all comes back to this idea of wildness, of recognizing that even if something is not untouched by humans, it can still be wild, um, right? The elk, you know, grazing in the meadow, it's 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 feeling the impacts of humans, but it's still a wild creature, it's still under its own agency. Mm-hmm. And if we can hold on to wildness as a touchstone, we can kind of find our way um, to sustain a commitment to environmental protection, even in the midst of, you know, what a lot of people now call the Anthropocene or the age of man, the age of humanity. Well, Jason, it's, it's why we live here in Park City in right. Summit County. You know, we move here because of nature. Yeah. Now, now we can just keep our dogs from pooping all over it. So yeah. I, mean, I, <laughs> oh I, I just had to, sorry. I just had a, Chris. as usual, another negative dog poop experience <laughs> this morning. But uh, we got to wrap up. Jason, um, website that people can go to, to read your article? Sure. It's sierramagazine.org with the National Magazine of the Sierra Club. And it should still be there on the homepage. But if not, you can find it under latest articles. And it's the most important environmental stories of 2022. And we appreciate this, but I also appreciate your positivity and a lot of these yeah. and, and looking up because in this program, we cover a lot of topics that can sometimes mm-hmm. be a little bit heavy. Sure. Yeah. And it's good to try to put a positive spin even on the dogs in our community. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> but yeah. so so we do appreciate you and thank you so much oh, for joining thanks, us Claire. on I this appreciate Green Earth. That. Yeah, well, and we'll, thanks again for the invitation. You bet. And we'll uh, see you next year this time for the next summer. Sounds, 
Sounds good, y'all. Take good care. Thank you, Jason. Take care. Jason Mark, editor of Sierra Magazine. Here now in studio, it's always a treat to have guests in studio. Uh, and we are speaking with Joel Zero, who is the executive director of the Park City Community Foundation, and Diego Zagara, who is also part of the Community Foundation, but I'm not sure your specific title. Diego, what? It's Vice President of Equity and Impact. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Wonderful. Chris. Good morning. And we're going to be talking about um, the Park City Climate Fund. And so I think let's just get a little bit of a brief history about the Climate Fund, when it started, and what its purpose is. And Joel, I'll hand that over to you. Sure. Good morning, everybody. Uh, the Climate Fund began in 2019. A group of community stakeholders got together and said, listen, Climate is important to everybody. It's especially important for Park City, given all that we love to enjoy here. Um, so we began ground making in 2019, and uh, over the last several years, we've made a little over half a million dollars in grants to local nonprofits. Just since 2019. That's right. Wonderful. And what are some of the recipients, like what are some of the programming that you support with this? Sure. Last year, we made about $150,000 worth of grants. And we made uh, grants to four organizations. One is Eats Park City. They're involved in the schools, helping them to do recycling and composting. Recycle Utah, Tree Utah, and Springs Land 3 and Livestock. Wonderful. And as we look into Park City's future, why do you think it's so much that it's so important, I guess, that people invest in this fund? Sure. That's a great question. I mean, if I'm looking outside the window right now and it's somewhere in between rain and snow, and I sure would prefer it to be snow. And so, you know, our economy rests on a, a lot on the tourist economy and we've got the greatest snow on earth and I'd really like to keep it that way. Um, you know, a lot of people say, what can Park City do around climate? When you think about the impact of global warming and you look at the, the top nine uh, global producers of, of CO2, you know, what can we do as a community? Um, and the answer is we can do a lot. Uh, it's important for us locally. And our landfill uh, is going to be full in just about 15 years. And that, the, the filling of the landfill is accelerating over time. So we really do need to address that issue locally and get everyone involved. And uh, Carolyn Wara um, from Recycle Utah is a friend of the show. She's been on here quite a few times and uh, recycling is, um, I think, a major part of what we're looking at here and how people dispose of waste. And we're going to be talking with her actually next week. But why, what, what is it that we can commonly do um, here in Park City, um, not just with this fund, but overall, what yeah. are you hearing? Love Recycle Utah. It's incredible. All of the things that people can recycle. It's fun going to the center, sorting out the items and plopping it in. So whether you're a full-time resident or just visiting, you should really check it out. It's incredible. So these, and these are the programs that you're supporting and sponsoring through the Climate Fund. And we do have a lot of generosity in this community, as you have mentioned. You've had almost half a million dollars uh, given to this since 2019. And you did get um, a fairly large boost um, Diego, did you want to tell me about a, a community partner that has stepped up on this? Absolutely. So just a couple of months ago, we heard from the good folks at Treasure Mountain Inn and the Homeowners Association wanting to do something good in the community. The Climate Fund came up on their list as a place where they could contribute monies. 
and see a meaningful impact in our community. So they know about our grant making three cycles so far. And as Joel mentioned, a little over half a million dollars to all these local nonprofits. The folks at Treasure Mountain Inn wanted to support the Climate Fund because they believe that philanthropy can step in sometimes when let's say a bureaucracy can't. Philanthropy can be flexible and responsive to community needs and not quite turn on a dime, but really act quickly and decisively on and fund some of these projects and pilots and test things out that at times bureaucracy may not be able to. And I mean it, I mean bureaucracy in the technical way, not the pejorative way. Um, but yeah, philanthropy can step in in this way and where local businesses and the private sector partner with us we can actualize that change through grants and funding meaningful pro programs. Mm -hmm. So again, talk about, uh, so the l most recent uh, grant recipients, um, who are they again and what, what are their projects? Yeah, so Joel mentioned Three Springs Land and Livestock, for example, yeah. which they've been on the show, I believe, right? Maybe a few months ago, mm -hmm. they've, t they've, they've chatted with you all and they're really into regenerative agriculture. They're looking at how the east side of the county can utilize land in the best of ways mm -hmm. by moving cattle around and making sure that the, the grass is growing once again. And they're creating these really healthy mini um, biospheres in that they're talking to ranchers and they're, they are, they're testing out a program over three years that will demonstrate the benefits of regenerative agriculture on the east side of the county. And um, I really got to give credit to the work that they're doing. That was a multi-year grant. Our grants committee agreed to fund. And um, it speaks to the direction the fund, I would say, was the kind of work we were looking to fund. I think Joel is going to speak a little bit to what next year is looking like. But before I want to talk about another project, which is the one EATS has yes. been uh, supporting. Composting at the schools. Uh, so much food was being mishandled and ending up at the, at the landfill when it could have been composted. With the help of EATS, they, they have folks standing by these bins, both educating kids on how to dispose food adequately and directing them. So we're seeing a diversion of hundreds of pounds of food per week per school. And I know they've been testing it out in the four elementary schools and the pilot works. We're seeing that it's impacting, it's reducing waste in our community, which is what Joel was talking about, right? We have a landfill with a limited life. Mm -hmm. And if we are dedicated to reducing waste in our community, this is one of the ways in which we can do it. Mm -hmm. So is it it's composting at each school or the compo the material? So it's composting at each school that's going on. Okay. And, and so, it's, so it becomes an educational event, not only an environmental event, but it's an opportunity to uh, bring education awareness uh, on the, the biology associated with composting, the chemistry associated with it, the physics, you know, the math. You, you can bring it into every classroom, uh, the, the, the elements behind composting. And as you look forward, um, what, how, what, how do you get to become a grantee? What is the process for the Climate Fund? So the Climate Fund is looking at reactivating a group of folks that are really interested, that care in climate, and are also technicians, experts in the field, so that we can look at our community, identify projects that are high impact, that we can fund, support, pilot, launch, and fund them with high impact grants. 
So in most likely, instead of it being an open grants process, we're going to be looking at partners that are in this space, the space of zero waste with a slant towards food waste mm. and see what is the greatest impact we can make with these dollars. Um, approach these organizations, entities, and it could be a for-profit, it could be a non-profit. Good work can happen on both sides. And we're looking to fund and support through very targeted, directed, and intentional grants some of this work in 2023. When you look at what is filling up our landfill, um, about um, 80% of it is divertible. So mm -hmm. when you look at the restaurant and bar refuse, uh, about 71% of that is compostable organics. Then you also have glass and recyclable containers. On the residential front, about 55% uh, of it is divertible. So we're sending a lot of refuse to our landfill that we could do other things with. Um, and what we're looking to explore is how do we create a virtuous cycle? Uh, Diego mentioned one of our grantees, Springs Land, uh, Three Springs Land and Livestock. Um, and they're using um, the compost in order to fertilize the fields. So how do we develop a cycle where, you know, the restaurant goes to the compost, the compost goes to agriculture, agriculture is local and organic, goes to the restaurant. Um, the role we can play as a foundation is a convening role, being bringing key people together. We can play a funding role and we can play this thought leader role. We alone can't do it and we shouldn't do it. We do need to bring together government the private sector and the nonprofit sector to say, what can we do as, an, as a unified community in order to be a model for other mountain towns and other communities in creating this virtuous cycle? We're speaking with Joel Zaro and Diego Zagaro, uh, b uh, both with the Park City Community Foundation, specifically talking about the Park City Climate Fund. Uh, annual grants that are uh, provided to local profits, uh, for profits and nonprofits with respect to uh, programs or activities that have an impact, potential impact on our climate. And it's, it, it is interesting, Joel, that you mentioned that for profit businesses can apply for a grant. Is, do I hear that right? We haven't funded, uh, check me, Diego. Uh, I don't believe we funded any for-profit entities. Is that? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And not but if a supermarket wanted to come, a local supermarket and had an idea for managing their food waste, which I'm sure they, there is no shortage of that that comes out of supermarkets, they, they are in play. They could. I'm going to mention an example that comes okay. to mind. Spoil to soil. Right. You can compost at home. They'll pick up your stuff. That's a for-profit that yep. we might be able to support. Who knows? I mean, hypothetically, if it's helping us meet our goals of reducing waste in our community yep. and diverting crap from the landfill, why wouldn't we? Okay. That's exactly right. Our mission is to help address the community's most pressing challenges. We do it primarily through the nonprofit sector, but we're not constrained by that. We have to be uh, really focused on the mission. We want to make an impact. We want to really steward our contributors' funds in a way that gets the results that we all want. Okay. Yeah, and uh, many, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I, speaking of results, I'm always at, well, curious how you measure success. So let's say, take the EATS program or uh, Three Springs, Land and Livestock. That's a three-year grant cycle. 
I'm sure they have some means of measuring how they measure, let's say, quote unquote, success with respect to their program. What what does that look like? It's such a great question. So the individual grantees, when they're submitting an application, all say, here's what we're going to do for the funds. Here's what we're going to get for the results. Mm -hmm. And that's super important. And we follow up with that. and And it's great. At the foundation, we want to look at the aggregate of our total funding per portfolio and say, how does our portfolio of grantees make a difference around climate change? Mm-hmm. So last year, with the four grantees we've mentioned, we estimate about 6.8 um, metric tons of CO2 mm-hmm. have been uh saved from going into the environment through these grantees. Now that's fantastic. It's really exciting. As we're thinking about the landfill and divertible waste, we will be looking to not the CO2 emissions, but what percentage of waste is diverted from the landfill. Mm -hmm. But metrics are very important in, in determining success. Yeah, and and who um, uh, outside of maybe the community foundation? Who are the decision makers on the grantees? Is it just inside the community foundation? Yeah, we have an advisory committee with folks that are technicians and experts. We have folks from the city and the county that help us with their perspective. And it's been a gift to have alignment with government entities. We have folks that represent large businesses as well, like Park City Mountain. Treasure Mountain Inn, people that really care about this and know their stuff when it comes comes to climate mitigation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the often expert advice of Chris Steinkamp with Mountain Towns 2030. Hmm. So we have a lot of folks that deeply care about this community, community, are feeling climate change in a visceral way, and are seeing what the climate fund can do when it comes to reduction of waste. And talk me through the cycle of the grant. Again, how often can people apply? So we are we're looking at announcing some big stuff right around Earth Day. And uh, so, yeah, mark your calendars for Earth Day 2023. What are we, four months out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Not even, April. right? And um, we're going to be looking at sharing with the community how we're going to deploy funds from the Climate Fund uh, what is going to be on the table as far as funding opportunities and what projects we're looking to bring to reality. Last year, we funded about $150,000. This year, we're looking to fund around $250,000. Wow. And um, how many applicants have you been typically get each year? Um, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so there's been three grant cycles, and we've had anywhere from 16 to 36 applicants. Wow. Uh, year one, there were three large impact grants being made. Year two, there were eight. And this year, there were four. So uh, we are looking at going deep in this. And when it comes to zero waste, we see that there are a lot of community partners already working on this. So our job is just going to be, well, not just, but it's going to be to deploy dollars in the best possible way, make sure that we're measuring and evaluating our impact, and aligning with other with our community goals of zero waste by 2030. Listen, I've been here for a hot minute. I've been here for about six months, a little over six months now. And what, there are a couple of things that have really impressed me about Park City com- as a community and Park City Community Foundation as an organization. The first is really how we do the grant making. It's not Diego or Joel in a room making grant making decisions. We bring in community partners. Um, and form a grants committee. And I think that kind of participatory grant making is really essential. 
The second is, uh, Diego mentioned our partnership with Chris Steinkamp. The, the level of relationship and partnership we have in the community, Lou Carton at Park City mm -hmm. is incredible. Emily Quinton at um, Summit County is incredible. Right. And so the relationships we have really helps us guide our work. And that's exciting. Good, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a team effort here. Uh, we're fortunate uh, in this county to have both the county and in this case Park City have sustainability departments and coordinators who, who have their own sets of programs and uh, initiatives and goals uh, with respect to say energy uh, use and renewables, water conservation. Uh, it's all part, it's all in play you're uh, focusing on uh, waste reduction, et cetera. It all matters. And hey, not for nothing, education and awareness and getting the word out is a big deal too. Those kids in those elementary schools are, next, are, are the leaders next year. Right. And it's great to see the excitement behind it too. And I think like you said, that next generation and building this excitement and also educating them and telling them how important this is to uh, our lives and our planet, um, I think makes a big difference. Now, just to uh, bring it full circle as far as uh, the Community Foundation is concerned, uh, this is a program within the Community Foundation, but just uh, for people that may not know, and I know most people in this community, but maybe there are listeners that are new that don't know about the Park City Community Foundation, can you give us a little 411 on what the foundation does? Sure. So the Park City Community Foundation focuses on addressing the community's most pressing challenges. And we fund in a number of areas. We fund in early childcare. Um, only 50% of working families have access to the early childcare they need. We fund mental wellness. Uh, coming out of COVID, there's no question that mental wellness is a significant issue facing the community. Um, we fund in climate. And then we also fund in affordable housing. Um, clearly a pressing issue for the community. Diego, did I miss any? Uh, sports access is an area that we also support, but you nailed mm -hmm. it. That's essentially what the foundation does. Support yeah. the nonprofit space around these big challenges. All right, we've got to wrap Great. up a yep. uh, website uh, that people can go to to learn more about the Climate Fund program. Parkcitycf.org. Uh, and especially if you're, if you're just visiting, you should check it out. If you go to a restaurant, if you're on the mountain, you are benefiting from the nonprofit community. And if you're lucky enough to be here, it, it's an opportunity to, to give back. Mm -hmm. And remember how you uh, reuse and recycle. <laughs> All right, Joel Zaro, Diego Zagaro. Is that is there a, was that just a coincidence that you guys always cigarra? <laughs> oh, cigarra. Okay, <laughs> that too. Uh, both for Park City Community Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on this green earth. Gracias. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We're gonna go to a quick sponsor, and we'll be right back. Support for KPCW comes from My529, a tuition program established and sponsored by the state of Utah to help families save for future qualified education expenses. Saving is less costly than borrowing, so save for college. Inspire their future. Your employer can talk to you about adding My529 as a benefit. Learn more at my529plan.org. Welcome back to This Green, this green Earth. Uh, we, got a, we got a couple minutes, and Claire and I wanted to remind folks about uh, seasonal lighting. You know, lots of homes lit up, beautiful, 
Beautiful. Uh, there And there are a lot more homes in Park City. I was just uh, hiking up on Christmas Eve and uh, noticed, you know, that the sheer amount, uh, the exponential growth that we've seen right. and, and all of the lighting that goes you know, far beyond where it used to. And there were a lot of Christmas lights. Now it's beautiful and it's festive, but as you point out, um, there has been an ordinance. Well, there's been an ordinance play. Park City, both both Summit County and Park City have seasonal or lighting ordinances in general. You can go to their website and find us. But they also have uh, uh, some ordinances or, or requirements with respect to seasonal lighting, in this case, holiday lights, etc. And basically... Uh, you can go, well, first of all, for Park City, you can go, it's Ordinance 2021-05. You can do a search on that, um, add in seasonal lighting to your search, and hopefully you'll come up with the ordinance. With respect to holiday lights, on page 19, to go right to it because it's 35 pages long, this ordinance. On page 19, seasonal lighting, if you have lights on your home, they have to be off at 11 p.m., okay? They have to, if you're, if you're, lights are on after 11 p.m., you're technically out of compliance with this ordinance, okay? If you have commercial buildings can have their uh, lights on till midnight, and on Main Street, they can have their lights on till 2.30 in the morning. But most importantly, at home, for those spruces and firs that you've wrapped Christmas lights around <laughs> every branch of that 40-foot tree, that has to be off at 11 p.m., or you're out, you know what, you can keep it on all night. You're out of compliance with the ordinance. Yes, and you said that you were um, driving through one night past midnight. and Well, I went to midnight mass uh, Saturday night, and when I came home, yeah, there are still homes that have their lights on all, all night, and that's non-compliant. So just a reminder, it's, again, it's Park City's ordinance. Summit County has a separate ordinance. Uh, Park City's ordinance, 2021-05, seasonal lighting. Go there, read all about it.